Hello world, what is up? Welcome back to The Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte. And on today's episode, we're talking about empathy and user research. Now, for those keeping score at home, this marks the third episode where we're putting empathy front and center, not just because of how important it is, but also because we have a really interesting pairing with it to explore today. Remember, we wanted season two to be not just about emotions, but also technology and the myriad of ways these two are so intensely intertwined. Uh, So why user experience research? Well, you see, for decades, if a company wanted to know what their customers or users thought about their services or products, you sent out surveys and assembled focus groups. Uh, Practice is still very much in use today, but the world has come a long way from the days of Don Draper sitting ominously in a dark room behind a two-way mirror. Uh, Culturally, socially, we've accelerated. Our day-to-day moves at a phenomenal rate. Our focus shifting not just minute to minute, but second by second. Asking someone to tell you about a personal experience after the fact still had its place, but to be there in the moment, to be able to observe the minutia of an interaction or experience as it happens offers a much more valuable window into the nuanced and complex ways we live our lives. So, okay, everything everywhere attracts you all the time. We know that. Uh, You've opted in and skipped enough iTunes terms of service agreements by now that you know you are generating mountains and mountains of data. But for all the endless logs that detail the date, time, and location you've opened Netflix, uh, TikTok, Reddit, or what have you, researchers know the when and what, but what about the why? What drove you to open the app? Boredom? Loneliness? Excitement? Imagine if you knew and could understand what someone was feeling in that moment. Piles of data can tell a story, but not necessarily the whole story. Without asking the questions that get below what the numbers are telling you, ignoring things like emotional context may point you in the wrong direction. Uh, Remember when the world was stunned by the results of the 2016 presidential election, partially because all the polling leading up to it prepared us for a completely different reality? That's like one minor kind of extreme example uh, of an instance where data flying solo might lead you astray. So how do you capture that emotional element? Once we know a person's full story, what kind of doors does that open and how does that change what research can teach us? Uh, How have the emotions our products make us feel changed since mobile devices took over our world? Brand loyalty used to just be about preferring a specific bar of soap or having a favorite soda, but now for some it's an entire identity. Anyone who's ever poked their head into an Apple versus Android message board knows emotions run high. Uh, These questions bring us to today's guest. Anyone with a passing familiarity with their work and what the fine folks over at Dscout are doing will tell you this absence of emotional context and proximity to the moment of interest in question is precisely the problem they were founded to solve. Uh, In a world of statistic-driven data nerds, our guest and their company, Dscout, is comprised of people nerds. Uh, Folks interested in understanding and telling the stories of other people. I'll bring them on in just a second, but before I go any further, an episode of The Feelings Lab is not complete without my friend and co-host, the great Dr. Alan Cowan. Alan, this is a really interesting one. I'm super excited to dig in. How about you, man? How are you doing over there? So excited. Great to be here. That's awesome, Alan. They are. I'm excited too, man. All right. And joining us now on the show, they founded Dscout in 2012 and presently oversee the company's overall strategy and growth. As Dscout has become a centerpiece for deep experience research at progressive companies, their research and product leaders tap our guests' personal passion 
for making sense of it all. Uh, they speak regularly on research and innovation in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, prior to leading Dscout, they served as Gravity Tank's managing partner prior to its acquisition by Salesforce, an alum of IIT Institute of Design, and a graduate of Stanford University. Please welcome to the show the founder and CEO of Dscout, the great Michael Winnick is here. Michael, thank you so much for being here, sir. Uh, it is great to have you on the show. I appreciate you making the time to join us today. How, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Matt. Thank you. That was an amazing intro. Oh, wow. Well, but thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Yeah, you <laughs> um, took me on an emotional journey. I was thinking about the carousel and Don Draper. I mean, <laughs> I try to evoke a lot. I try to. You got to. I, mean, I was I was there with you. I was I was I was all over it. So really fantastic. Oh, that means a lot to me, man. I put a lot of work into those. So <laughs> thank, you. thank you very amazing. much. Seriously. Yeah, they always get my mind racing. <laughs> so yeah, was, oh, that's a really good description. It's a lot better than what we do when we describe it. So. <laughs> That's amazing. I was just one of my opening questions was uh, who better can describe it than you? I was going to ask you to tell us a little. All right, let's get into it. Let's, uh, I, yeah, I don't know what you know. What you I'm, I'm going to throw out everything I've written down. You guys just tell me how great I am for the next forty minutes, and I think we've got an episode. You I think are incredible, incredible, incredible man. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. All right. Well, gentlemen, uh, I am truly blushing. It's not just because my attic is 110 degrees. Uh, I am flattered. Thank you, uh, <laughs> Michael. Uh, I did my best and apparently it was pretty good to, to give the audience an idea of what you guys do at D-Scout. But um, I still stand by it. Who could possibly explain it better than you? So just uh, briefly getting the parts that I didn't cover. What inspired you to launch D-Scout and, and what was your mission from day one? And, and just give us a little bit of background. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I started my career in, in the product world in, in late 90s tech. I, I worked at Wired. That was my, my first job right out of, out of school, just when the internet was a brand new thing, right? So in the, in the early days of the web and uh, started really working on questions around product and design and just uh, really started getting into research because I was always trying to figure out some pretty basic questions. What do, what do people need? Yeah. What do they want? And, and how do we give it to them? And I felt like I started as a terrible research practitioner, right? Oh, truly awful, right? <laughs> and ended up just kind of pursuing it. I went to design school and then I had a chance to really practice my craft as a, as a consultant uh, working with big companies on figuring out what's next. And I really founded D-Scout really around the mission of the fact that human voices should really be at the center of how we create new things. And yeah. You know, our mission, which is creating a more human tomorrow, is probably a lot like your mission, Alan, if I had to guess. But like, sounds lofty, but, you know, we, re we really do it every day uh, at DScout, right? So each and every day, the world's most influential organizations are on DScout and using our platform to interact with the outside world, to ask them questions, to explore opportunities, to get feedback on ideas. And, you know, we really are the point of first contact between yeah. really the the inside game and, and the outside world, right? Kind of yeah. really figuring out where they're going to go. And so, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in that, but also, you know, it's, it's a really important place to be. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot to do. Uh, really important questions are being asked and uh, really uh, feel like there, there's a lot. Um, yeah, there's a lot, you know, and I think this question of empathy really is a core, core driver in terms of what, what people are trying to plug into when they're using a platform like ours. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I'm I'm excited to to crack that open and dig into that. You you mentioned how in the beginning, the early days of your career and your journey, you self-identified as a terrible researcher. So I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, now, th- you know, many moons later, you know, h- how would you define a good researcher? And and who are you looking for? How do you know you've identified a fellow people nerd when you're bringing people in? And and, and yeah, what what makes people nerd and what makes a great researcher? Sure. Yeah. Lots of overlap there. I think, I think at its core, you know, a people nerd is someone that's fascinated by understanding people and what makes them tick. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think there's just this curiosity uh, by nature about how people work. I think a good people nerd uh, loves, loves social science, right? They love kind of understanding biases and mind tricks and beacon and all of those sorts of things. They're empaths. Um, And there's a lot of people like that. And I think, uh, certainly, it would be hard to be a researcher. I've met a few misanthropic researchers, but they're pretty rare. Right? <laughs> so, so, for the most part, I think it, uh, it encapsulates a lot, a lot of, a lot of researchers and kind of where their where their passions are. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you mentioned there's uh, probably some overlap in your missions between you and Alan. Alan, you've done a, a ton of research, uh, uh, psychological research, you know, versus Michael. Uh, you're doing user research. Forgive my ignorance of the two worlds, really, because in talking to both of you, I would agree that there there is a lot of overlap. Uh, are you guys uh, working on different planets or is it more like same planet, different hemisphere? Alan, what, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, it's funny because traditionally academia is kind of stuck in the lab and we're not on the real world planet. <laughs> Michael is dealing with how people actually behave and yeah. uh, asking people questions. And there's nothing like a conversation to understand what makes people tick. Um, and that's the challenge uh, in psychology is that it's really difficult to quantify that. Um, and it's becoming more and more essential to do it with fewer touch points because, you know, traditionally you uh, in the product world, ask people questions about a product that would inform your decisions. You'd release the product. That would be it. Now, technology is constantly changing, right? And it's constantly adaptive. And you don't have that many opportunities to ask people how it's going to make them feel before it changes itself, becomes more intelligent, learns more, makes different decisions on their behalf. Um, And so our worlds are kind of converging uh, in that, you know, there's a need to be able to come up with generalizable psychology types of results. Uh, but to do it in a way that actually is relevant, relevant to people's real lives. Mm-hmm. Um, technology, particularly, is affecting people's lives more and more. Psychology has kind of tried to ignore that for a while, but it's starting to come to terms with that, right? Like, we like to deal with human universals, but, but more and more of the variance in human behavior is situated in this technological world. So, yeah, I've basically left the lab. Um, and what we really want to do is join kind of the D-Scout kind of mission. Is we gather kind of similar data now. It's data with real people out in the world. Uh, the, the main difference is that we're strictly quantitative. Like our whole goal is just to quantify that behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and we mm-hmm. want to become relevant to what D-Scout is doing. <laughs> but right now, I think it's really hard to beat the qualitative methods. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Michael, what's the, because I've heard Alan talk before about how he sort of goes about collecting his data. He mentioned a little bit of that just now. What's the process, without giving away the 11 herbs and spices, as I like to say, what, what's the process look like for you guys over at DScout? What would you say are the most valuable tools at your disposal when it comes to that observation and data collection part of the process? Sure. Yeah. I mean, our whole platform is effectively built to enable people to to go do that, right? So we have ways that you can uh, recruit participants uh, mm-hmm. to kind of do this kind of work, right? So if you want to understand um, how people prepare dinner, uh, you can go on DScout, recruit people, and 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 find people that are good candidates to explore that question with. And then you mm-hmm. can 
say, hey, let's let's kind of spend dinner time together. Let's uh, so we have different tools and different types of methodologies. If you want someone to, um, you know, talk to you about dinner, we're not going to ask you questions in a survey like, what did you eat last night, yeah. and how long did it take you to prepare that meal? It's going to be really different. It's going to be like, show me making dinner. Let's start in your mm. fridge. Open the fridge. Let's. Let's have a video. Let's talk about what's in there. What are you going to pick out and why? Right. And I think that we're really trying to live with people as they're going through that experience uh, so that not only can we hear what they have to say uh, and, and what they're thinking, but we want to see their facial expressions. We want to see, we want to see that fridge, you know, we want to see we want that fridge <laughs> open and just be like, Oh my God. Going Show on? me that fridge. <laughs> you know, we don't, we want to see like the real, the real, the real truth, you know, yeah. Sometimes it's intense. Right. But I think the point is like, you know, that, that messy reality of being humans is what we're trying to get into. Right. We don't want, you know, for so long, you know, Alan, we spent, we, we lived in a world where we basically assumed that we could ask people these questions and they would just like answer them. And it was some form of, truth, you know, yeah. uh, which I think we've learned over time, like humans are contradictory. Our memories aren't great. You know, yeah. uh, we're not really good at like understanding our motivations, you know, and so we need methodologies and types of research that kind of encapsulate what it is to be a human versus mm -hmm. this pretend story, which is we can ask you a bunch of questions. You can answer radio buttons and that that's actually like truthful. I mean, yeah. Yeah, how many companies are still basing decisions on like, uh, you know, um, which of the fault, you know, what's your purchase intent for purchasing this thing, which isn't even real. It's a picture on a screen that won't exist. I mean, people ask that about food. Yeah. Like, how would you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, you know, if you just kind of think about it, right. So we're still, you know, that's, that's kind of how I'd really contrast the difference is that getting in depth, being able to recruit people and having methodologies where you can still analyze it and make sense of the, the information you're getting back in an, in an efficient way. I mean, the process I'm talking about used to take months yeah. and it was very expensive. You know, it was like storming the beaches of Normandy to go do this type of work. And with, you know, with smartphones and AI, we can do it a lot faster. It's still, there's still a, a, a work part of it, right? It's not just press a button and get an answer, but we've come a really long way. And I'm excited with, tools like Hume, I really see an opportunity to really blend these things together so we can really kind of democratize this way of working and get more human voices into more uh, discovery and development processes. Very cool. Very cool. I'm excited. Yeah, I want to dig into you mentioned uh, talking about the tools that are available and stuff like mobile devices and how they've changed things. You know, you said uh, a while ago, no one would argue that the mobile device uh, single greatest change to how people live their day since the car. And uh, certainly uh, true in terms of introduction of a physical device. Uh, the important context was I read that in something that you had said uh, in the years prior to 2020. Right. So sure. now the pandemic's happened. And uh, as we all know, that change everything how did it push things in directions that perhaps you hadn't yet anticipated or or is it the opposite did it just expedite a trajectory that you were already expecting i just in general what coming into post 2020 here we are two years later how, how different are things on your side uh and in what you guys are doing sure yeah it's 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 changed uh things a lot i think it's accelerated a lot of changes in our in our world in a, in a few different ways first off you know we were already going through this kind of secular shift of the sort of work we were doing from kind of um 
um, back rooms and focus group facilities to more online. And obviously, yeah. you're going to do uh, kind of in-depth research with people. Uh, you kind of had to do it online for a while, right? And that's been a, that's been a big change. Um, but I think even more profoundly, I mean, I think you know, uh, life changed dramatically everywhere. Yeah. And uh, I think it really started people saying, hey, we got a lot of questions, right? And in, uh, in terms of what's going on, and every, everything's changed a little bit. And I think simultaneously, it really raised the bar in terms of, in terms of experience and mm-hmm. kind of the competition around building experiences. And yeah. so I think the result of all of those things is it really helped to uh, accelerate and grow our business, uh, which, w- which was a positive outcome of a really tragic uh, world experience, right? Mm-hmm. So. And certainly, you know, as a leader, I mean, there's all sorts of challenges and changes that were introduced trying to run a run run my business from my attic uh, versus uh, kind of how I used to do things. So lots of learning and adjustment there. Yeah, so, I don't want to get too lost in the weeds, uh, but you mentioned remote focus groups and something I was excited to ask you about. Excited, I, I was curious. I really wanted to ask you about this. My so my pre-pandemic gig was celebrity interviews, and in uh, in the early days of the 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 pandemic, we shifted to full remote. And right. one of the surprising things that we discovered at that time was that our guests were being a little bit more open, a little more vulnerable, and sure. we chalked it up to them, you know, coming to us from their homes, right? And not being on a stage in front of an audience holding a microphone. And uh, I'm sure they were also vulnerable because we were all terrified in those early months. But still, it was an interesting uh, uh, thing that we didn't expect when we went from sitting on stage to talking through cameras. And, I, you know, in a remote focus group, I wonder, are people in, engaging in that over Zoom from their home versus in a white room with a conference table and a two-way mirror? Does that, is there any way for you to perceive that you're getting different kinds of results? Did you see a similar thing where the people you were talking to are suddenly more open or honest about the thing they were engaging a conversation? about yeah we generally do less focus group and that's really your thing yeah. times, but I, yeah. I can I can kind of respond to the to the general trend so so I think mm-hmm. first off the you know kind of the idea of saying I think that makes sense to me people are going to be more comfortable in their in their homes yeah. and in their own environments um, can can you imagine something more awkward as a setup of you're gonna meet some strangers there's gonna be a glass wall that you know people are gonna be behind. There's going to be a professional moderator sitting there and we're going to have a real meaningful conversation. I mean, you're a wonderful host. You have, right? That would be a pretty hard gig. That'd be a pretty hard gig to set up for. And I, think that, <laughs> I don't, I don't know, think I could handle that one either. Yeah, I don't think, yeah. Tough, right? It's pretty tough to make everybody comfortable. Um, and so I actually think focus... But if you know anyone hiring for the record, I, I'm not saying I wouldn't try. I just... Yeah, I, I, well, I give a lot of credit. They're very... Focus group moderators that are good are really... It's very. It's a very hard thing to do. Um, and so I'd say that... And in part, I mean, to kind of Alan's world, I think. I think the thing that's hardest to manage in the world of of focus groups is, is the social and emotional aspects? I mean, what are people responding to? Are they responding to, you know, uh, the judgment of other people in the room? Are they trying to resonate with an alpha person in the room? Like, there's so much complex uh, social interaction going on because humans are humans, right? Uh, That you, you know, that I think it is one of the most difficult methods to do well. but it became just a default uh, because yeah. it was, relatively speaking, easy to organize. Yeah. So I think there, we're seeing a big change in terms of moving that online. And I think, to your point, a little, a little less of that as people are in their own homes. Um, I think some of that artifice kind of, kind of goes away. Yeah. What do you think about that, Alan? 
Is I that- felt the same way about, you know, kind of taking things out of the lab. And uh, the pandemic did change that in a sense. People became really comfortable in front of webcams, almost anybody. Um, and so it makes it really easy to collect data where people are in the natural situation that they're in. Um, which probably helps, you know, both of us, <laughs> um, you know, the, the traditional way people did research in psychology is you'd line up uh, outside of a lab, you'd probably see other participants, some guy in a white coat would you know, invite you into a weird, like, room with no windows, and, <laughs> and, and you'd perform some kind of uh, unusual experiment that you didn't really quite know what was going on, but usually you had a suspicion that it was not what you thought. Uh, and this, <laughs> this leads, you, leads you to kind of be thinking about, well, what, what is this experiment, experiment really about? And that's not at all the way that we want to do research now. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, being able to collect data with people responding to stimuli and uh, having conversations in their own home, just so much more natural. And we found that we've been able to actually quantify emotional behaviors you can't do you can't just don't see in the lab. Um, so, and, and I think people's comfort, maybe that wouldn't have been possible if people weren't comfortable in front of webcams too, because that in and of itself, maybe if that was a weird experience they'd never done before, it might, it might be, a, um, an intrusion, but, but here we can get real data. Um, people feel like they're just talking to somebody or they're just watching something with somebody. So it, yeah, right. it's been great for us in some ways. I feel bad yeah. saying that. <laughs> I mean, I'd say even to add to that, you know, even unmoderated, uh, unmoderated research, which just basically means we're not having a conversation, but someone's recording a video or sharing something based on a prompt, right? So, mm-hmm. so Matt, we, could, we, we did some research recently where we were just asking people to share moments in their life where they experienced awe. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. Now, we, did a whole, know, we did several episodes on awe. <laughs> I, I want to hear about this. Please tell me more. There, right? But some people, you know, would tell these amazing stories and they would get choked up telling their experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, people are, you know, um, there's, there's also a lot that happens when you remove the moderator, mm-hmm. right? Um, because back to emotional challenges, they're looking at your face. They're, they're looking at what you're... Re- I'm doing that right now, right? What yeah. are you picking up on? What are you not picking up on, right? You're kind of taking, taking that out. Sometimes you can actually get to a much crisper signal about uh, what, what people are feeling. I'm always yeah. blown away by uh, people's willingness and openness to share as someone that lives in fear of emotions. I want to be clear. You know, <laughs> I, I don't like this at all. I was by other people that are yeah. really able to share that level of vulnerability. Well, so. it's just such an interesting, it's come up on the show a couple of times, especially this season, uh, people's willingness and comfort and, and openness in dealing either with an AI or what we've uh, like virtual people, uh, just basically a non-traditional human being. There's once you remove the human element from the side of who they're talking to there it reduces the 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 worry of judgment the self-conscious they just people open up in a way which is very interesting because i think the the traditional and like mainstream public perception is all of those things are creepy as hell and none of us want to deal with them but the data shows that maybe some are creepy but a lot of people have such a a a positive and and um, productive response to it it's really interesting it really is yeah to drive home you know when i think of great hallmarks of great research our great research. I think about a lot about the participant experience. Mm-hmm. You know, great research actually done well for a participant is cathartic in its own way. They learn something about themselves. Right. You know, right. and yeah. you're really doing it well. They walk away with a newfound sense of understanding, a deeper connection. Even if they explore something as mundane as making dinner, <laughs> you're actually asking them to synthesize a part of their life that they don't yeah. spend a lot of time thinking about. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, 
um, you know, I mean, that's that's one part of the equation that you're trying to to look at. But I think yeah. that when it, when it when it's done well and you get that level of engagement, you know, you're really getting at kind of this uh, truth not only for the researcher team and your stakeholders, but for the participants themselves. Yeah, yeah. Let's um. And Michael, I apologize if I'm putting you on the spot here, but you said back in 2016, uh, I was watching this video, and you had some fascinating research results uh, of uh, just with, at the risk of oversimplifying all the amazing work you did. It was more or less uh, detailing the amount of time people spend with their phones in a given day. Right? Sure. There's a lot more nuance there than that, but that's the general premise. And uh, the big numbers I remember seeing, uh, and again, this is 2016. Average Android user was roughly 2,600 hours daily touch. Or I'm sorry, 2,600 daily touches, uh, sure. and, the, and the heavy user was roughly 5,400 daily touches, right? Uh, and I bring all that up because that was four years ago. So I'm mm -hmm. super curious if you have uh, um, just how that number has changed and in, in, in what that looks like now, uh, because this yeah. is you know after four years of a president that had us glued to Twitter and refreshing news websites in four yeah, years. I would say yeah. it's, it's I, we have not measured it since. You haven't, yeah. It's become yeah. a lot harder to do those kinds of precise measurements mm -hmm. um, in the good old the good old days when Android lets you pretty much measure anything. <laughs> 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 but I would say uh, I would guess it's worse. It's uh, got to be right. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, and and that was a that was a collaboration with Danielle Credick actually uh, mm -hmm. that when we worked on on those numbers numbers a while back and you know i think that um you know it's a it's a really simple tool but it's really you know the the point of doing that work was to kind of help to say hey to dramatize what what this is what it's doing to yeah. our lives and i think you know what i've thought a lot about kind of with that work and since is um obviously uh the bigger societal questions right our our, our attentiveness our ability to be present and focus um and also, just like every one of those things, I mean, Alan, I have a question for you on that. Like, I feel like every one of those those little interactions is just it's taking a little brain time from us, right? It's it's a it's a little bit of cognitive overhead, and probably in some total, it's going to be a lot of cognitive overhead once you start adding up five thousand interactions a day. You know? Oh, completely. I mean, the, the, we spend so much time uh, with apps that are purposely optimizing for that. <laughs> um, and we don't spend much time idly thinking anymore. And so I, I wonder a lot about that. Like what happened to all the idly, uh, idle thinking time? Because now you just default to, I'm going to open my email. Uh, then I'm going to spend a lot of time watching TikTok. <laughs> like, it's so funny. Yeah, it's real it's tough. I mean, I feel con consciously, personally, like there's times where I'm just like, I just need to put the devices down yeah. and simply have no information coming at me. Right. Yeah. But what's funny is when you put the device down, and this is probably what we both are interested in fixing, the, the, the device no longer gets any data from you either. So not <laughs> only you, you don't get any input from the device, but the device doesn't get any input from you. So that so nobody understands whether this is good or bad for your well-being, right? All they have to optimize for are the, are the things that you're doing on the phone. So that's that's the big thing that we need to fix, yeah. I think. Absolutely. Well, I remember, Michael, you also saying that you feel like that's a problem that technology might have to help us solve as well. And I wonder, like, what does that solution look like? Right. Because just to Alan's point and at the risk of being cynical, uh, until a giant company figures out how to make money from us not looking at our screen, I feel like we're kind of screwed. Like we're going to be keep gets being pushed in, and, and goaded into like this is where our whole life needs to be right now. Um, but like, what are some of the solutions that you think or you dream of? about at night that like, it could potentially help us find our way to a more uh, balanced existence, as it were. 
Sure. Uh, I think that I'm, I feel fortunate that people far smarter than me are trying to figure, figure this out. So it's a really hard. That's really the whole hard. premise of my podcast, my friend. <laughs> well, what I will say is that like, the company can, it, it's invested in you spending time with whatever its product is, right? But that time does, that time could be better spent. It's not invested in that time not being well spent. And so even companies like Meta are thinking, well, how do we make this more immersive and educational and more productive experience? So they care. And, and they found a way to think about this. It's not contrary to their bottom line. So I, I take a slightly more optimistic view. That's yeah, why I, I, I do here. feel like there has been a maturation maybe also to tie back to design and research that, that there is more maturation in the field. I feel like, a f- you know, there's a appreciation of dark patterns and like, a, I think there is a earnest desire in our fields to make products that are healthy for people. I think that, um, but there are real counter counter incentives to that, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And so I think that, um, I think some of that's business model evolution. I do think there are technologies in the world that Alan's in and, and some of the work that Hume's doing, um, where it would be pretty amazing to get to the point where we could actually be like, actually, you need to put this down for a little while. This isn't doing good things to you. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, I think right now the things we're doing are really, uh, really basic, uh, you know, uh, really um, probably not not quite there yet. Um, but I think that and I do see um, a chance uh, using technology and using sensing to kind of get to a point where we might just say, hey, that's that, that's too much for you right now. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go, go look over here. I mean, so much of our and so much of our work with technology or users work with technology, you know, is about emotional regulation, you know? Um, well, one of the, the, the um, equally fascinating is just all the revelations of how much time and who's spending it when were the reactions of people when you shared the results with them. Uh, there were people who were shocked, people who were sad, people who loved the news. Um, wh- what was that surprising for you? Because I was surprised by that to find out just the spectrum of responses to here's how long you spend or how much time you spend on your phone. Right. What, what was that like when you first saw those results and you were like, people are, are really all over the map on this. Yeah, I, it's funny. I, it was a long time ago, but if I if I, I channeled it a little differently, which was my 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 feeling was almost that there were a range of reactions. But if I were to kind of like try to streamline the center of that reaction, I didn't have Alan's tech to do it. Yeah, we should we should run it with your your stuff, Alan. Probably get a clearer signal. I actually think it was kind of like wow. I guess that makes sense. That was pretty much the reaction. Pretty much right. right? So, so I, I feel like it's it's funny. Um, it was both, uh, you know, surprising and then quickly uh, like metabolized. People were just yeah okay yeah uh, that, that, you know because I think people you know do understand the centrality that you know, um, these devices and, and digital technology plays in our lives. And, yeah. you know, even back to, you know, the, what I said in D-Scout, the most influential organizations in the world, that's not just like an idle statement. I mean, what are the things that are really determining people's daily lives and experiences anymore, right? It's, yeah. you know, it's their phones, it's, you know, corporations like Meta and Google and TikTok, right, are, are yeah. really dom- the institutions that dominate their their lives, right? If you think about what modern sociology should be 
It's really about the way they work with and contend with these sorts of institutions as much as it is governments or kind of more more traditional organizations. Do you think that's why people are maybe I'm wrong in this uh, assumption that it feels like people are more emotionally invested in a brand? Is it because there's just like these massive monoliths that control so much it was inevitable for them to get attached to it? Alan, I'd love to know your thoughts about that. One, do you agree with me that you feel like people are more emotionally invested? And two, why why do we think that is? I actually think people have gotten a little bit skeptical of branding over time, um, especially because there's a few big companies that are surfacing a lot of stuff to them. Um, Although obviously they're still, it's still hugely effective. I mean, the way people think about these large tech companies uh, is of great concern to the companies (laughs) above all else. Um, um, But no, I I, I think there's, there's a huge influence of sort of, the amount of time, for example, kids spend an enormous amount of time on, on Roblox, right? And, and, and adults are just completely disconnected from that. Yeah. Uh, and so there's this disconnection of different kinds of people, different generations, different um, groups that sort of defines their whole existence. Uh, and, and so a kid can't talk to an adult about Roblox. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so, so brands have, have become in some ways more formative to us too and, and more uh, uh, individualizing for us. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, this this something I really want to talk about. and It's kind of in the same area. Um, And this might be a little bit long winded, but hang in there with me. So uh, my wife and I, our niece, she's about to turn one. Right. And and we FaceTime a bunch. Uh, She lives pretty close, but just like convenience and safety wise, we FaceTime more than we've seen her in person. Right. And she loves it. She gets really excited. She gets super excited when we do visit in person. And and I said to my wife, I was like, of course she does. Because I was like, where does she see us the most on FaceTime? Right. So that's like the same screen. This is my theory, right? This, this for her generation. That's the same screen where she watches Coco Melon and Baby Shark and all her Disney princesses. And then, like when she Facetimes with us, we're just like another show. We're her favorite show. So when we visit her, it's like if I met a Ninja Turtle when I was a kid, right? It's like somebody famous is here. And one, I find that very endearing and cute. But two. Mobile devices have flattened what used to be sort of a spectrum of interaction. You had your TV and then later your computer screen. You had a car stereo, magazines, movie theaters, a Walkman, all these different uh, uh, places that you would go to engage in different emotions tied to each one. How do you guys think the consolidation of all that into just like one rectangle, you know, that provides everything (laughs) has impacted the emotional connection and the emotions in general that we experience? So what what are what are our thoughts around this concept? Oh, I'm going to I'll take a a crack at a piece of it first. And then Alan Alan will kind (laughs) of come in, come in strong after me. But I'd say, you know, uh, I think the first thing that you said, you kind of said the word interaction, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the one of the things that's really a distinction is when we're inter- when we're doing these things on screen, it's back to that all of those clicks. You're cognizant that there's this layer of interaction mm-hmm. that is between you and the experience. You would never like see so, you, you don't see your niece in her in her in, in space or you don't see each other and think I'm now moving forward five paces. I've turned my head this way to initiate an interaction. I am going to press a button and press return to initiate talking. So, so you recognize intuitively that there's this layer of like interaction I call it like a tax or a cost. Ooh. Cognitive overhead, right? In every one of the things you're doing on the screen right? that it is hmm. that, that it isn't real and i guess the last thing maybe to tee you up alan is you know um you know we have millions of years of evolution 
of direct contact and many more senses that are just going to get fired uh, in those situations, right? In terms of um, many other things we're feeling that do get flattened, I think, in, in the digital experience. Hmm. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, we could, the, the phone is just another source of sensory kind of innovation, right? There just, it's just a way of, of stimulating your retina, right? That's, uh, and, and so in principle, if you put your phone, if, if the phone was the optimal version of the phone, it wouldn't be a phone, it would just be your retina. Right? <laughs> like you would get all of that information in a much more immersive way, which is kind of why people are excited about the metaverse, right? Um, but right now, if you spend all of your time through the phone, it's like you're kind of you're kind of like, what's the right word? It, 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 you, you don't have a full sensory experience. You have a reduced sensory experience of the world. Everything has to come through the small rectangle. Uh, that doesn't mean that anything, like, there are certain things you don't necessarily need anything bigger than a small rectangle for. Maybe reading books, it's fine. Um, but yeah, when you, if, you're, if all of your social interactions are coming through, for example, texts, then you're missing everything that's present in uh, real life human conversation. And that has to take its toll, right? Because so much of that is so important to us as human beings, as physical beings that evolved in a physical world. Uh, and you can see chemically that there are effects of, of actual physical touch, of actually being present with somebody. Uh, you can see that there's more efficiencies in communication. Like literally you understand people better and you understand their emotions better. Uh, and we sort of, we need to bring it back. I don't think screens are going to go away. Right. And I think that, you know, it, that it, it's, it's going to be hard. I think that when people say like, let's reduce screen time, I think that the challenge with that is people are not going to go back and just sit on their street corner doing nothing rather right. than just being on their phone, right? <laughs> so so they're, they're go they need a portal of some kind into the digital world. I don't think there's any avoiding that. We just need to make that portal better. I yeah. think that, that's the I think that's 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 the trajectory of humanity right now. Right? If we if we don't make that portal better, it's going to be the phone. Yeah. Uh, but people are not going to go back to not having the kind of interconnectedness that they're used to having now. The uh, huge question, Alan. How do we make the portal better? What do you think? I mean, you know, the, the sort of a metaverse approach is one, um, but I yeah, think but that there. There are fundamental limitations to that, right? Uh, I think, you know, what is the metaverse though? I think it's I said the better, Alan. I said, how do we make it better is what I said. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I mean, if you're focused overly on one channel, then I think you lose sight of how you make things immersive, but also restore reality as it once was, where you're sort of navigating your real environment. So I think augmented reality would be really great, right? Where you can, you could be work, walking around in the world and uh, the thing that you're talking to, instead of being a search engine or, or a digital assistant with just a disembodied voice or you're texting, is a thing walking around with you, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine if you were, could talk to your friend virtually, but instead of it being on the phone, it's like an actual virtual person next to you. That would be ideal, right? Uh, you would restore a lot of... So I think basically what I'm saying is augmented reality, even though the technology is not there yet, will be really amazing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but there's also, you know, uh, in terms of what this channel does, uh, is the, 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 the phone is, is very hyper-optimized for being like this small rectangle and you've surfaced a few options. I think this will also open a, a, up the ability to be more directed by your interactions with the world, have more options in the way that you would have as you're interacting with the world, um, and have uh, the technologies that are surfacing those options be more ambient and better optimized for your real lived experiences. And I know that a lot of that is vague, but like I think it really does come down to like 
Well, if, if, if something's going to recommend anything to you, music, a movie, food, uh, how attuned is it to your actual environment? Mm. Um, because at a certain point, it could be like a really, really smart friend who's sitting next to you, understands the mood that you're in Absolutely. and yeah. reads like everything about you and is able to make that suggestion. Oh, we want pizza tonight. And you'd be like, oh, my God, you're right. You're reading my mind that you can't have with AI today. Right. <laughs> right now, the AI is forcing you to do something it doesn't really understand too much about. Uh, what's going on in your life slippery yeah. slope because yeah. when does that really smart friend doing all that start to sort of <laughs> replace and fill the void of actual dumb friends of which we all have many <laughs> it's a yeah, great I mean, idea but it's tricky the, the smart friend dumb friend conundrum. i like it so. well it, it shouldn't pretend that it's a conscious friend i think that's where it's really like the way that we have human connections we we we, we connect to somebody else being someone into the conscious experience and an AI should never impersonate that, right? Yeah. Um, it should facilitate that. Um, yeah. but, uh, so that's, yeah, that's I really like the, the word sensing and senses is kind of like the, the locus of where I think a lot of innovations need to happen here. So yeah. sensing like the ability for technology that can better sense me or where I am or what I'm feeling um, and and respond intuitively. You know, the simplest example is like, hey, if I whisper to Siri, should Siri whisper back? Probably. It probably says something, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I'm trying to be quiet right now. So don't don't shout at me, right? To much more sophisticated forms of sensing. Um, through, you know, my ability to sense and perceive what's going on. You yeah. know, um, how much um, information is trapped in just even the simple example of Zoom calls and who talks and who doesn't talk and who talks over people and who, you know, right? Like there's so much uh, learning uh, we can get that still really hasn't been, I think, pulled and we can kind of develop better, better senses. And I think the last point is, you know, I'm really keen on obviously given D-Scout's mission, like how can uh, technology also help to strengthen, uh, not to replace our human bonds, but to strengthen them? Yeah. You know, how can it actually make us better friends and better coworkers and better listeners. Um, I think there's a lot of, a lot of promise there. I, and I think there, there it is unavoidable uh, to Alan's points that there will be more technology mediation in our lives. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. Yeah. hundred percent. I just want to add like, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think so much of it is, it is about connecting people. I think a lot of companies want to do this. And I think that, that, that the fact that we all have this goal is really, uh, it's a shared goal, right? It's, it's about expanding on the connections that you have. And the way that AI can facilitate that is huge. Like right now, it basically, if you open up an app, uh, like a social media app, it's showing you what, who, who you should interact with right now. Uh, so it really is curating our interactions already and it's doing a better job of that being more attuned to what yeah. you're going for in the present moment. I think this could expand on your friendship. You could have more friends and not less. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah and I was just going to add a dumb anecdote about my dog because you, uh, you mentioned the idea of like, if you whisper to Siri, should Siri whisper back? And I was thinking of um, that that could also go a long way to helping you feel a connection with that device because my dog will howl if you go like, ooh, he'll howl with you. And we tested this out. If you like lower your voice and you whisper 
whisper howl, he'll bring his howl down to meet you. And when he did that, I was like, we get it. We're on the same page. We're connected. And so basic reciprocity. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Believe it or not, guys, we're over 40 minutes. This is the part of the podcast I routinely refer to as the home stretch Uh, before we move on. And we've already kind of covered the the stuff where we typically end, which is like future uh, blue sky and talking about it. And we'll get to that. But something I wanted to ask, Michael, um, two years ago, almost to the day, uh, uh, April 2020, you mentioned in a Green Book uh, blog conversation that will eventually enter this time where we're finding out and adjusting to all the new normals and the thirst for understanding and how every aspect of consumer life and experience is going to change. And you said, when we arrive at that time, it'll be an incredible and important time to do research. And, And I'm wondering, have we arrived there yet? Has that time come and gone? Are we now past that point? Uh, I just love a follow up on that idea, like where we are in that timeline, because that was two years ago. And just uh, from what you're seeing on your side, like, are we there yet? (laughs) Uh, Yes. I don't know. Uh, Yeah. You know what I think how I've kind of thought of it is like, I, I don't like the phrase the new normal. I just call it like the new abnormal. Yeah. <laughs> everything is everything is weird and it's just going to be weird for a while. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, and so I feel like that is the the place that we're we're living in. I think that you know, uh, like any you know, I think in, in the research field there was a real rush to be like the new normal. What's going on? Life's changing and it's calming down a little bit. I think there's a little less of this feeling that there's these tectonic shifts that are happening like minute by minute now. So yeah. I feel like there's a sense that things are Things are things are slowing down, but also, you know, there's still obviously profound changes afoot, you know, Um, politically, socially, technologically. Right. We're still contending with, you know, an incredible amount of of change in our lives. Right. And kind of what what all of that means. And I think, you know, um, academics will be studying, you know, the last two years for the next 80 years, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's really this incredibly profound change in, in, in the world uh, that we'll be trying to understand what its ramifications are, you know, for, yeah. for years. To come, so. I laughed at your, uh, your initial response because there is no uh, sentiment more emblematic of this time than yes with a question mark. Just yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, I may, sure. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. <laughs> um, that said, the last thing I wanted to ask you sort of about this time, you know, you mentioned, uh, aside from the obvious ways that you guys had to adapt, you know, doing more stuff remote and things of that nature. What was a, a, an unexpected uh, way that the business might have had to adapt to do the, the, the important research that's demanded of right now? What's a challenge you didn't see coming? I'll answer that maybe slightly differently, which is just as, course, a, as yeah. a leader of a company, um, you know, this was uh, really learning how to how to lead differently, right? So, you know, um, mm. there's a great cop out of four walls, okay. which is the traditional way we ran our company. Was that, you know, it, yeah. it does a lot for you, especially on, you know, the intuitive sensing side of leadership. You can walk around, look at a bunch of people's faces, look at body language. Who talks to who? What what are they talking about? What's the mood of the office? Right? All of that goes away, right? And you know, to me, you know, there's been um, you know, to me, a lot of learning of trying to figure out like, how, how do we make our company now? How do we yeah. interact? Right? How do we create connection um, across across a group? I think every company is figuring out new rituals and new approaches to making that happen. And I think that that to me is 
still just a great area of unknown and learning and, you know, trying, trying to figure things out, you know? So I, I feel like the company and what the strategically we were doing was pretty well suited to the changes that happened in the world. I think where the biggest changes were, were but the company itself had a tremendous amount of, of learning to do. Cool. That's a great answer. Thank you for that. All right. Official home stretch. Let's do it. Let's uh, take a look to the future. Blue sky. Uh, what's the, the future of user research look like? What's something really exciting on the horizon? What's the holy grail, right? What's the thing that would change the game again for you? Uh, you know, that isn't just a dream, but maybe soon to be a reality. Give, give me Blockchain. a little bit of that. Blockchain. So yeah. What am I saying? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, it looks a lot like uh, the sorts of work that I think Alan's doing. Hopefully, we're going to be working on some of that together, right? But I, I do think that you're, you know, what you're going to really see is, um, I think, this incredible growth in our ability to take what is historically very qualitative data and to divine the signal from it more efficiently. And what that will allow us to get away from is kind of these, um, as I kind of talked about this, like walk through the front door type of research, you know? Yeah. Are you engaged in your work? Five, highly engaged. One, not at all engaged. Do you even know? <laughs> do, you, like, do you know the answer to that? Right, yeah. really? A really hard question, actually. Right? It's true. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> right now, I'm answering a survey. You know, yeah, you exactly. Right? So, <laughs> in this moment or before? Yeah. Like when? What do you mean? Yeah. yeah. I do see a lot of promise in being able to take more kind of um, qualitative sorts of inputs and unstructured inputs and to make meaningful sense out of those, I think has great promise in terms of uh, achieving our, our goals and missions and also just, you know, yeah, making, making, uh, better things for humans. Nice, nice. Alan, do you want to add anything to that? What, what, uh, that was a fantastic response. Thank you, yeah. Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my thoughts exactly, and I hope that happens in the academic field of psychology too. I mean, we, in order to make questions quantitative, we funnel people into these really simplistic paradigms that historically like radio button kinds of questions. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't administer those kinds of questions to a friend if you were asking how they were doing, right? Like, <laughs> you wouldn't get very much uh, information about what's going on. Like, you really rely on conversation on the kind of dialectical methods. Um, and I think that scaling that is going to be really critical. Scaling user research is going to be critical. I think there needs to be a lot more user research um, and empowering user researchers to basically have those kinds of conversations that they have one-on-one uh, -on -one with users, but have an AI facilitate that conversation or part of that conversation, right? Um, or And perhaps some of that data is not, you know, never leaves the user's device. And, and the learning that you get a lot of maybe through federated analytics um, and you're quantifying a lot of the things that, uh, that would have been qualitative before, but, you know, this is just the opposite of, of basically trying to make a question quantitative by simplifying how you measure something. Instead, right. it's like taking the way you would have measured it anyway and, <laughs> and, and, and scaling that, which is, I think, only possible if you can really quantify human emotional behavior, if you can uh, 
quantify not just you know what people are saying, but the way they're saying it. Use natural language understanding methods that are attuned to context and to emotion, um, and ask questions back. So you know, survey doesn't ask questions back. You know, that, that I think ninety percent of the information you get about how you, somebody is feeling is you know the follow up questions that you right. ask after they give you the first answer, um, and so it really needs to be like that. And I think uh, in order to ask the right follow up questions, you need to understand somebody's tone. So much is it, you know. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay, right? And then, yeah. like, like you wouldn't know unless you understood the tone behind that. Just the "I'm doing okay" doesn't give you very much, right? So, uh, yeah, I, I 100% agree. Uh, I think that is the future. Fantastic. Yeah, I guess, I guess, I'll add a couple couple different points onto it. I think I think um, you know one thing I don't think technology the future will not be is I like this. Um, yeah. Often customers or people will look at Dscout and say, where are the insights? And I'm like, okay, we can't make an insight. An insight is something that literally happens in your brain, right? So it's a unique connection that you have. That's why so many insights, when you hear them, you're kind of like, yeah, that's, that's kind of obvious. <laughs> because it's actually, it's literally, you know, it's very close to an epiphany. It's a form of, of connection making in your brain that hits you in an emotional way. Right. And so I've always resistance to that. So I do believe we'll have tools that can show us new patterns that can uncover things that maybe we can't see. Right. Because we're not great yeah. at reading 5,000 things and actually organizing it. That's, that's pretty hard to do. Right. But, yeah. um, but I do believe that the, the insight, the ability to make meaningful connections to know what resonates will still very much be something that we'll be asking, uh, asking humans to do for some, for some time. So yeah. AIs might have their own insights that they make, but I don't think we're going to understand them. Yeah, it's about delivering the data to a human, right? In the right form. It's not reductive. Right. I think, you know, imagine like you had uh, a million users that you surveyed somehow, maybe using with the help of AI or with user researchers going out. <laughs> and But it really, you could explain that the variance in all of those people with four different kinds of responses, right? And then... AI could embody each of those four responses in a communicable avatar where you have a conversation with that. Now you only have four conversations and it's representative of the whole population. <laughs> it's like the perfectly engineered conversations. Yeah. With, like, yeah. Like yeah. I'm thinking that you can take a persona, you could represent it in corporeal form in the metaverse and have a full conversation. <laughs> I don't think that's crazy. Like you no, can already generate humans, right? That are averages of other people. People. Um, so imagine just generating the average conversational agent that is an amalgam of all of the conversations that a million people have. Wow. <laughs> It'd be a pretty intense Dscout mission to be like, can you take a video? Come here. Another 90 videos of your entire life. Yeah. But now you, you don't need that anymore, actually. You can do it all with like one front facing video now. And now it's like you can literally make it a 3D person. It's crazy. Simply, simply scale, <laughs> down. So. Yeah. Unbelievable. But we yeah. still need them to open the fridge and get that shot because without that, what do we have, honestly? Right. There well, we imagine seeing the average person. These are four kinds of fridges. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to see which one of yours belongs into. <laughs> like, yeah. Or maybe the, your, it's a window into yourself. This is actually the kind of fridge you have. I was just having this conversation with, so we hosted uh, a very, very small get together and somebody who came to our place, uh, we had food available, all these different things. And I turned around at one point and one of the guests 
was just going through my fridge and pulling out <laughs> condiments that I did not designate as public consumption condiments. <laughs> and I didn't really care, but it was enough that it stuck with me. And I talked about it with my wife yesterday. I was like, is that weird that he was doing that? And she was like, I, and we had this whole talk because it's like the fridge is deeply personal. You have things at different states of good and bad. You have food that's ready to be eaten. You have food that you know you're not going to eat and you're eventually going to throw away that's just sitting in there. Like there's so much stuff that you've internally cataloged and prepared. <laughs> So I felt like mildly violated and really care, but I, I'm here. I am talking about it. Let's, um, let's, let's get in there. Yeah. I, I see. I see the, the next episode. We're going to have, we're going to do a fridge tour with you. We have to. And I, uh, I apologize to our listeners for following up such incredible actual insights and intelligent conversation with a story about my fridge and condiments, but uh, it was very relevant to me. And at the end of the day, I got a microphone in front of me. So here we are. Um, gentlemen, this is my least favorite part of the show. It's the end. Uh, sadly, we're out of time. That flew by. Michael, sincerely, I, I always say I'm bummed, but I really mean it this time. <laughs> I had yeah, so I had much pass. fun, man. Really, really fun talking to you. Uh, it's, thank you so much for taking the time and, and coming and hanging out with us and chatting. Sincerely, it, it, it means a lot to us, and I, I really did have a lot of fun with you on the show today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much. I second that. It was a really fun conversation. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, really enjoyed it. So. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Alan, you've done it again. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you for being my co-host and thank you for being a friend. Uh, travel down the road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. I could not sing the whole song. Uh, and to those wow. joining us all over the world, I appreciate you guys as well. Everybody out there listening, watching, wherever you are. Hey, in the unlikely scenario where you find yourself with a little bit of spare time, uh, do me a huge favor and let us know what you think. All right. Or even better, how you're feeling. Send us an email over at thefeelingslab at hume.ai, T-H-E-F-E-E-L-I-N-G-S-L-A-B at H-U-M-E dot AI. Ask a question, suggest a topic, or share what's in your fridge. Whatever it is, uh, just uh, send it on over our, our way, and uh, I promise I'll do my best to pay attention. Uh, anyway, farewell for now, my friends. From the Feelings Lab, I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody, and please stay safe out there. <laughs>